On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. Listening to the Ackerman Year. It is part 10. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. We have been away for a while. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Kate, someone else is here. Yes, someone else is here. Um, yeah, to make up for the fact that me being on the job market means that we've been a little lax in our scheduling lately, we thought we would bring in a fantastic guest to join us today. Uh, and that is Patricia White. Patty is the Centennial Chair and Professor of Film and Media Studies uh, and also the Coordinator of Gender and Sexuality Studies at Swarthmore College. Uh, her writing on feminist and LGBTQ plus film has appeared in many places, uh, and she's the author of a number of books, um, most recently a book on Rebecca, the film Rebecca from BFI. Uh, prior to that, women's cinema, world cinema, women's cinema slash world cinema, projecting contemporary feminisms from Duke. Uh, and then her, another of her very well-known books is Uninvited, Classical Hollywood Cinema and Lesbian Representability uh, from 1999. So uh, there's many more things I could say about Patty. Uh, I'll just say one more thing, which is that Patty is also on the editorial collective for Camera Obscura, which was a big part of the uh, reception of Ackerman's uh, work in terms of feminist thinking and theory. So, um, And Patty was also involved in uh, curating the um, special issue devoted to Ackerman a few years ago from Camera Obscura. So... Um, okay, so that's a lot uh, to introduce, but uh, thank you for joining us, Patty. We're we're very glad to have you here. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm delighted to be part of the um, coming back after hiatus run. Oh, Great. <laughs> every gap between episodes now is a hiatus. It, I like to think that it makes us more of an event podcast than it did before. No, that's right. Everyone's sitting on the edge of their seats uh, waiting for this uh, to come out, but it's great. I'm very glad that we're back. Uh, when we were planning the episodes, the theme for this week, I think, as I'd written it out in our little spreadsheet, was something like Ackerman as filmmaker or Ackerman on filmmaking. Um, I realized in my mind I had kind of morphed that into thinking about Ackerman as auteur, which aren't necessarily the same things, but I feel like that's sort of where I ended up thinking about this uh, this episode going. And so we're going to look at uh, three films. Um, the first is a uh, documentary shot by Sammy Frey in 1975 called Auteur de Jean Dillman. Um, and we can fill all of this in a little bit more as we go. But each of the films deals with uh, the question of sort of Ackerman as filmmaker, or we see Ackerman on sets, um, or her, or she's sort of reflecting on the process of uh, filmmaking, or in some instances, autobiogra autobiography uh, as a way to think about filmmaking. Okay, so I don't know, maybe as a way to get us going for a question here, I know Patty, uh, authorship, questions of authorship are a big part of Patty's work, her writing. Um, so I just was wondering, do you, I don't know, could you give us a, your sense kind of of some of the questions that people are thinking or talking about in relation to, uh, to authorship, particularly maybe as regards feminist um, media, particularly these days, maybe how you see Ackerman as fitting into that in your own thinking? Thank you for the question. I think um, Ackerman obviously has trans morphed, uh, transfigured, been transfigured since um, her her death um, into 
um, a different kind of uh, auteur filmmaker, um, one who's sort of actively mourned and looked at um, in terms of uh, obviously a complete body of work, but also a body of work that um, holds clues towards, you know, her whole um, autobiography. And part of that is very moving. Um, certainly people who were partners with Ackerman in, in her movies, um, either, you know, filmmakers um, or, um, you know, critics who spoke with her over the years um, and scholars who worked on her work have had really moving things to say, um, really profound things to say about um, Ackerman's total legacy. But there's also, um, as always, a little bit of a um, uh, fetishizing of the author and um, particularly her self-inscription, which has always been um, profound in her work and really um, uh, part of the interest to feminist scholars has been the way that she uh, blurs the line between um, an auteur who provides some kind of signature or some kind of, you know, more intellectual um, touch across films and something that's much more embodied, um, almost experimental in terms of the ways that she communicates uh, across her work. Um, and so it's a, it's a, it's an important question, but it's also like a little bit of a, a painful question in terms of Ackerman. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't want to say that um, that like her her death and her last film, um, you know, no home movie <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, overdetermines how we think about her because Anytime you look back, even at these almost um, ephemeral and previously not widely seen short films, you're just taken with her liveliness, um, with her, you know, her presence. Um, so I don't think that there's, um, you know, any kind of uh, protocol for mourning her or speaking about her in a um you know, final kind of way, but there's just a little bit of a twist, I think, to um, thinking about her, that you're always kind of checking yourself um, about, yeah, the the Ackerman who, her, who, when she was continuing to make work, was for decades already very much invested in by feminist film critics um, and, you know, sort of cinephiles more broadly, but there was a, a special kind of relationship between the very field of feminist film criticism and Ackerman. Um, and I think, you know, so that was going on for a long time and she probably was responding to that in some of her work, certainly in her interviews, sometimes in her writing. Uh, so it's, it's not new to be thinking about her, her special kind of authorship. Um, and I hope that, you know, as more generations uh, come to her um, that, there'll be, I don't know, um, less of a, of a um, finality uh, or less of a um, 
question of kind of loss and almost completed completionism to be like, now let's look at the whole oeuvre and more of that kind of, you know, personal uh, relationship to this voice that remains super fresh and super like, you know, like really speaks to like young people. Um, yeah. You were, I think, Patty, in your intro, in your introduction for the camera obscura issue, which I was skimming through earlier, um, I think you cite, maybe it's Berenice Renaud talking about what prompted her to put together the tribute to Ackerman in um, Senses of Cinema after she passed. And you quoted her saying something like that she was just so moved by the outpouring from uh, women, particularly young women, after Ackerman passed away, saying just how... Uh, I don't know how much they felt this like loss at a very personal level in a way that wouldn't be true of other filmmakers. I mean, it made me tear up a little bit. I was like, I, I deeply remember that moment when she, when I found out that she passed. So anyway, that, that takes us a bit further away, but I just wanted to say that I thought that was a really lovely uh, sentiment. I agree completely that she holds a lot of promise for young people, particularly. I just wanted to kind of throw out some, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe some frameworks or questions around thinking about authorship in relation to Ackerman because she, she fits, she fits in here in a very interesting way, right? I mean, if you think about the kind of arc of arguments about the author in terms of um, film theory, right? You know, moving from the kind of mid-century and the politique des auteurs to, I don't know, the kind of um, rejections and then maybe reclamations of, of authorship under, I don't know, yeah, what like your Shambu calls the, the new cinephilia, right? Like he, he sort of develops this argument about how, uh, I think it's an essay in Film Quarterly, actually, he talks about how the old cinephilia that's sort of obsessed with an idea of auteurship that's very connected to the kind of white, the standard white male canon. Uh, but then there's this sort of new cinephilia that's very engaged in thinking about uh, cinephilia as broadly as possible across a number of forms of film and thus thinking about how authorship might be a kind of potent category for, um, yeah, thinking about larger kind of political shifts that are more inclusive across the the field, et cetera, et cetera. But Ackerman holds an interesting spot in there, right? Because on the one hand, like she's very taken up by feminist theory, by uh, kind of queer theory in a number of different ways, but she herself often rejected that kind of labeling in relation to her auteurism, right? For her, it was always just, I. it's a Chantal Ackerman film, not it's a lesbian film, not it's a feminist film. Um, so it's interesting. It's like in some ways she was very devoted to the idea of the kind of not devoted. She, I think she used or maybe even weaponized a little bit the idea of the kind of individual genius paradigm, right, as a way to kind of leverage her own stance in relation to like the European avant-garde. And I mean, I think as someone as maybe one of the first women like through that kind of ball or those barriers, I think she really needed to. So it makes total sense to me. But it's just I think it's interesting to look at her now in relation to kind of like where these larger debates about auteur theory have gone. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I got Simon, if you had any thoughts about that or, or Patty. Um, well, I have no thoughts about, uh, you know, uh, Ackerman's place in, in the auteur's canon or, uh, or, or anything like that. I, I will just say that uh, for the context of my viewing, uh, I've spent virtually all my time between this recording and the last one doing manual labor and not really watching movies, let alone watching Ackerman films. So uh, yeah. just the experience yesterday, I just sort of marinated in these movies like over and over and over, just like getting soaking <laughs> it, soaking up Ackerman mindset. Um, and I, I'm, I'm glad, uh, Patty, that you mentioned um, sort of the 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 energy that is coursing, especially through her shorts. Uh, we're going to talk about one of them in this episode, but uh, Portrait d'une Perceuse and Family Business are great examples and uh, contemporaneous, I think, more or less with the one we're going to talk about. 
Um, and, um, I, I hope that over the next little while, um, as Ackerman has sort of popped, uh, surprisingly back into the discourse that, uh, people (laughs) are going to be sort of hunting down those nooks and crannies and, and things that are sort of, especially in a North American context, a little bit tougher to see. I feel like, um, the new cinephilia is, um, one way of thinking about a shift in, you know, our canon and maybe intersections of kind of identity-based claims, um, to, you know, uh, representation in a sort of political way, like stand up and be counted for representation as opposed to, um, you know, the, the questions that I think are more, um, germane to Ackerman's emergence, um, around representation, which, um, I feel like she, in saying, um, you know, I don't make, um, you know, women's films, I make Chantel Ackerman films. She then goes on to say, you know, I think the more I, um, you know, the more singular I am, the more general I am. And I always think of like, you know, things that are happening at, you know, similar time, like Monique Fatigue working on pronouns um, and the ways that sort of breaking into language and including cinematic language um, is, uh, you know, is about a point of view. And it's not a sort of generalizable kind of um, identity. Um, it's, um, you know, I feel like Alison Butler um, in her um, you know, little book called Women's Cinema, and it's kind of yeah. written Love for that text. <laughs> it's so beautiful, but she yeah. really talks beautifully about sort of self-inscription. And I think that that is a kind of, you know, writing on film or a kind of, um, I would very much say, um, women's but not essentialist women's um, and feminist authorship that critics like, I think Judith Main does also a really beautiful job of talking about something really different in authorship, the sort of, um, it it has to do with making films, um, you know, outside of a studio context and, you know, having certain kinds of control over the film. Um, it has to do with a consistent um, um, iterative body of work that's, you know, and maybe even not a body of work, you know, that that is, um, you know, not, um, not to be deciphered as a body of work like an auteur, but as a kind of ongoing kind of practice. And so all of those things, I think, are really key ways of thinking about um, non-dominant authorship (laughs) um, that that she opened up um, in ways that have lots of kinship with other experimental traditions that have had women and very unique, irreducibly unique women central to them, like whether it's, you know, Maya Darren or, um, uh, you know, other women in, 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 experimental traditions so i i absolutely see the um way in which she becomes an you know auteur creative genius auteur and there's also some gamesmanship in that in terms of answering to like you know godard is the is the one that we take away from that time but i think there is some there's a different critical framework for thinking about authorship and, um, you know, underrepresented identities that she really is is the the beacon for. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I agree. I think there's some some fascinating uh, 
points in there. And yeah, it's interesting. I sort of brought up the, the new cinephilia to old cinephilia thing to be a little polemical because I feel like I don't, <laughs> I'm not entirely sold on some of those claims either. Um, I think for me, I'm glad to hear you kind of make the, the distinction maybe between um, the idea of authorship as a point of view versus a sort of like essentialist representational model, because I feel like for me, I mean, I think that's very much speaks to me. I'm I don't know, it's interesting, like reviewing some of the literature that I could find about kind of Ackerman as author. Um, you know, I was recently, I was reading uh, an essay by Griselda Pollock where she talks about some of these questions. And um, yeah, I mean, and she mentioned there something similar to what you were saying actually, Patty, earlier, which is that in the wake of Ackerman's passing, there has been maybe an even more increased tendency to look at Ackerman's authorship practices through the level of autobiogra autobiography, right? So like read everything through this lens of she's sort of reflecting on or representing or intervening in her own life. And I mean, again, and, and anyone who's looked at Ackerman's work for any amount of time knows that you can't really avoid those questions because Ackerman is very much making them present in her own work. Um, but, you know, Pollock is sort of arguing that it it tends to maybe yeah, again, maybe move into this space of thinking about the kind of individual genius who grows ideas in their head and then just simply like, you know, zooms them out onto the screen without having to kind of engage with questions of um, yeah, labor or uh, collectivity or create a shared creative practices, or also really the idea that the working through film for Ackerman, like this like film working ends up shifting then how she thinks about an issue which then kind of iteratively shapes what she's doing over the course of her career right which i think is all these are all great points right i think probably at this point we can transition to talking about the individual films we'll have plenty of, to say i think about questions of authorship as we go through them so i guess the first one we'll start with uh is the earliest of these films that was made in some senses i guess it was shot in 1975 by uh the actor Sammy Frey, and I wasn't able to do much research in terms of finding out why exactly it was that he uh, ended up shooting this. Um, if anybody has any good details about that, I would be happy to hear it. But um, I believe him and Ackerman sort of, sort of knew each other. Anyway, so uh, he I shoots. Think he was friends with. Um, I'm sorry. I think he was no, a friend. Um, friends with Delphine is you're my right. understanding yeah. but maybe but maybe i'm but maybe i'm wrong yeah no you're totally right that's exactly correct i'd forgotten um but yeah so the so semi Frey is on the set when they're shooting jean dealman uh shooting in kind of black and white video um and the rushes from that uh i believe kind of sat somewhere for almost 30 years and then ackerman and another woman named agnes uh, reves edited them together into this kind of semi it's not quite a feature length film but it's about an hour long uh in 2004 so almost 30 years later um and yeah you basically just kind of see a sequence uh, a series of sequences of them shooting on the set um and i i will obviously say a bit more about that but um but simon had you seen this before uh no definitely not no what was your take on it i i have to say it's there's been a lot of discussion of jean dealman recently and i just i i love how non-mystical it's it's filming is you know yeah <laughs> i love how there's you know we, we especially especially i mean i i already sort of knew a lot of what we see just from reading about it and also from having watched the film a couple of times um but you know we see a pretty you know we see a uh, ackerman's working methods in a in a pretty detailed way and especially we see her and delphine in collaboration a lot that's what like 90 percent of this film is and you're really struck by the give and take between them and uh 
to I mean talk about non-dominant authorship. Uh, it's it's a real. Uh, there are times when Delphine is is uh, is, is calling the shots here. <laughs> yeah, it's it's true. Um, uh, Patty, I assume you'd seen this film before, hey? I I had, but only um, you know, it appeared like as a as an extra on you know one of the iterations of now we have access to Jean Dilman. Um, and I forgive my my kind of uh, aside here, but you know, my relationship with Jean Dilman was um, was pretty much based around showing the 16 millimeter, you know, re- release print um, and watching it, you know, for the first couple of times. And then it got really yucky <laughs> and was withdrawn from distribution um, for a while. And I I checked it out of the New York Public Library, which had a 16 millimeter circulating collection. and um, you know, drove it to Pennsylvania or took it on the train. I don't remember, but it's a heavy <laughs> film because of how many reels there are. And so just this idea that there was, you know, and so when it finally came out, um, you know, first in Europe and all of this, like just how you could access, you know, this, this film and in its, in its more pristine images, et cetera. And then finally this like, extra appears and i just so i'm just totally like into the into the artifactualness of it and the rediscovery and the video and the trace and all of that so it was wonderful to just sit down and and think like no i can actually just watch this and so can you know my students (laughs) it's like in the world it's it's pulling back some of the you know the then and there of the making of this film in ways that just are so priceless um because so much of Jean Dillman's about like the lack of the reverse shot yeah. you know so like w- what's in that space that you know Delphine De- Sirigue is dreamily or not dreamily depending on how we understand the performance and that's one of the things that comes up in um in their back and forth um you know, looking off into this space that includes, you know, I'd always imagined because of um, because of uh, interviews that there's like a f- circa five foot tall Chantal there. There's a big ass 35 millimeter camera. Um, <laughs> there's Babette Mangold. Um, but there's also all these other people. And then there's Sammy Fry's yeah. video camera kind of shaking like <laughs> you know, the heresy of a shaking, you know, <laughs> um, tilted frame um, in the, you know, a film that's so much about the levelness and the measuredness and the stationariness and the absolute, you know, um, immobility of that stare and that all this kind of activity is going on um, around it. I don't know, really lovely. And to see a teeny bit more of that damn apartment, which I've seen, I know an artist here in Philadelphia who's um, reconstructed the apartment um, and, you know, has done all of this work around like what this flat looks like because of the signals that we get and then the ones that we don't get. And, um, and here we have, you know, things like, where's the outlet? And, uh, <laughs> um, and also just the fact that they're sort of building the set during these rehearsal processes that we see, it is weird. like for this film that has become so iconic and that you've, mm-hmm. I mean, we've all seen multiple times. 
it is really kind of strangely disorienting to see them be like, well, the table could be higher or lower. Or we could move the shelves up or down or we could change this or that. I was like, wait, no, you can't. Like that kitchen is eternal. You can't. Right. That's the kitchen. It's eternal. I thought it was quite funny yeah. how like, I, I thought it was quite funny how when Sammy is filming them filming the kitchen scenes, uh, he keeps yeah. his camera at that same level. No, he's told to at one point. That's the thing. I remember this. He He's filming from higher up. And I think Ackerman says to him, because they're going to use it as part of a mechanism for like timing how long the rehearsal or the scene is. Mm-hmm. Ackerman's like, put the camera where it will actually be at the sh- in the shot. And then you see it turn off for a second and then it, it opens again and you're on that kind of correct Ackerman framing. And, and Stephanie Fry's like, but the heads are all cut off. And Ben's like, yeah, like, I know. It's wonderful. No, and and everything. So, I mean, just to now I'm like just talking about what's so rich in the film. Um about the you know the recipe for the veal cutlet mm-hmm. and how a polish jew who has middle class you know status but might still be a little bit tacky might oh, make their bed <laughs> <laughs> so like really intense stuff about whether you can you know what whether there should be a big fluffy old duvet, duvet or there should be like you know something more um you know i guess eastern european <laughs> Like a blanket inside a duvet cover. Like just I was fascinated because I've stared at that bedspread so much. And, you know, that little towel that comes in and you're just like, wow, no, it's you know, it's they they made that whole bed. (laughs) A lot of the discussion slash like I don't want to say argument, but sort of the. The, the debates or the discussions that happen between people on the set, a lot of it seems to boil down to Ackerman's perception of a gesture, especially the bigness or smallness of a gesture and like mm-hmm. and her very specific idea and then communicating that to, in some scenes, Dev Finn and in some scenes, an entire crew is really something to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, yeah. and in Ackerman too, it's like, it's fascinating here, right? Because I think, uh, and again, this is another funny tradition that we have on this podcast, which is sort of finding completely ridiculous ways to connect Chantel Ackerman to David Lynch, just because Simon and I had another David Lynch podcast. But I couldn't help thinking of some of the kind of behind the scenes footage of certain David Lynch projects here, because to me, there's some similarity in the sense that Ackerman has a very clear, hyper-specific idea of what she wants, mm-hmm. but she doesn't necessarily want to go through what I think frequently actors assume is the standard process of externalizing these directions at a kind of conceptual level of saying, well, this is why I want you to do it that way, or this is what the character is thinking, right? Ackerman is really dead set against that. And part of a lot of the back and forth between her and Delphine is Delphine saying, you're not doing a good enough job telling me what I should be doing. You need to be saying more clearly what, and then Delphine will be kind of like gently ribbing her. And we should also say, because I think we mentioned it on the Ackerman podcast a million years ago, but um, just again, like this film, you watch it and you're like, Delphine say rig deserves so like so much respect because she at the time like she she was working with you know major directors at every level and she was like I'm gonna work with this 24 24 year old young woman who's shooting with this entirely female crew uh, on a sh- small budget because I believe in like the feminist project of art I mean she really she puts her money where her mouth is and I think even as she's pushing back frequently against Chantel it is always done with such like respect right this is the thing it's like they are kind of collaborators which I is, is sort of amazing yeah. Yeah, Simon, you mentioned that collaboration and it's, um, you know, um, it, it's it's lovely. Uh, it, and there is, of course, the way in which Delphine, you know, her, I'm sorry, um, 
Jean, the character, (laughs) has always taught, you know, sort of taken as, okay, so she's, she's patterned after the gestures of Chantal's, you know, aunt, um, you know, or her mother. um, And she's a woman of a certain generation. And their age difference is, is, you know, very clear in in the film. And there is this sort of gentle uh, mentoring of Ackerman as, you know, how to be on set and talk to some talk, yes. talk to an actor um but then there's this wonderful sort of s- um synchronization of of their their ideas like yes um uh, uh delphine wants more but um you know wants more of the why you know she just says réfléchis like think about it <laughs> she's like think about why you want it and at one point sort of says you do this all instinctively right Ackerman's <laughs> like yes but they're completely in agreement about the non-psychologization yes. of Jean. So, you know, Chantal's like, I don't want there to be a psychological motive. And Delphine's like, well, bien sûr. You know, she's exactly like with that. So it's not only like, you know, why does she do it like internally, but why does she do it for you as a director? Mm-hmm. Why do you have her doing it, you know, this way? So it it's it's really you know, wonderful for like, I know there's um, been more interest in Sarie and in her, her feminism and in her own work. And um, I know um, uh, Grace Ahn is working on a biography of her and it's just, there's just so much, you know, richness to, to go into there about her making, as you said, this choice to go with the, you know, reading the script and going, yep, I'm there. Oh yeah. Four hours long. Yeah. Seven minute, you know, me at a table sure um but but why <laughs> yeah but definitely she... oh go, go well yeah I, I was gonna say i don't know if it's still available online but i think for a while maybe another gaze was showing it the um the documentary film that delphin serig shot called uh in english it's like be pretty and shut up or something and it's yeah, all t- yeah yeah women on sets i mean and it's an incredible film like yeah, that yeah. is incredible so if people are interested in say you should definitely track that down it's a little more yeah. available now no and um, it, i mean i i remember i was like women with women make movies i was like we have to distribute this it's so reg you know it's so relevant um and they're talking about like me too era things yeah. um yeah in the 70s um in a yeah in a very forthright way so yeah. yeah it also just reminds you that when you see it you're like young jane fonda was a badass man jane fonda badass and i love her like bad <laughs> french accent yeah, exactly yes Yes. Okay, but anyway, just to come back to what you were saying there, Patty, I feel like it, it's interesting because you you definitely get some sense of a back and forth between the two of them about this question of, uh, yeah, not exactly psychologization, but it's the Delphine really feels like maybe the way this, the space has been set up and the fact that the script has, was written so specifically, like that every little thing is defined in the script. Delphine's like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. And, you know, it's that perpetual kind of uh, idea that actors don't like to feel like they're not contributing, right? It's like, you don't want to feel like you're just a sort of paint in a paint box. You want to feel like you're doing something. And to Ackerman's credit, I feel like you can see over the course of the documentary that sort of shifting a little bit, that they they end up more in these kinds of 
setups where in the rehearsals and in the working out the scenes, you see a little bit of sort of flexibility. But again, Delphine is always sort of at, at the end of it, always saying you're the director, what you say goes, right? And I, I mean, I think that that is like, I, I just, it's incredible to watch that happen because you watch this film and Ackerman is so young in it like it is shocking how young she is and it's also fascinating to think that she just had shot Jatuil L because on screen in this film she reads as certainly not reticent I mean she really she knows what she's doing and she's really engaging with everyone in this like very direct way but she she doesn't read as particularly kind of uncomfortable on camera it's hard to explain she just reads as sort of bashful maybe on camera or something which is not something I'm used to seeing from her and so it's a funny just a strange revelation it's also really strange to think about her editing these rushes 30 years later right like how she felt about it that far later it's it's fascinating yeah can we get an o'toole the o'toole no, I... de jean dealman does someone have that somewhere someone filming them editing this <laughs> i wish no, it's interesting because because claire atherton isn't didn't cut it and i, I yes. and i'm so used to thinking of their you know relationship in the editing room in um, I guess this was 2008. Was this cut? Was that when it was? Yeah, I feel like that's what I saw. Um, and yeah, and, and and so I find that really interesting as well. Um, and I do think that I'm very charmed by, I mean, by every time that Ackerman is on film in terms of the way she carries herself and the sort of, um, but you know, especially in in as you said in 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 Lel where you know she she said I would never do that again. I remember her saying I would never appear on camera. I would never act in my films. I didn't know, you know, she says like how strong it would be. Um, and so there's maybe a little bit of that pulling back, but she does seem to actually not like being, being on camera, especially at the beginning of Autour de Jean Dillman. Um, she really like is always, you know, shooting these glances at the, at the camera. Um, and then there's this one really profound move moment when um, Delphine tells her, um, you know, sort of pushes her and she looks down and it almost seems like she's, she looks very, very vulnerable, mm -hmm. but then she comes, she sort of like raises her head and, you know, has the idea that she needs. So it's this, it's this very interesting, you know, yeah. emotional, um, and then, you know, just the strength of that intuition, um. Well, and also, I mean, Delphine, there's another moment in it that really struck me um, because I feel like it's kind of shocking, actually, when you see it the first time. Uh, it's I, maybe in the middle of the film somewhere. I forget exactly where, but they're they're setting up shots in the kitchen again. And you kind of realize by context that what they're talking about, it's Delphine and uh, and Chantal and maybe Mangolt is in the mix, too. And they're talking about, I think, the fact that the kitchen space isn't big enough for something that they need to shoot in there. And Ackerman has proposed something like when they build out the space on the other side, which would be the dining room, that they would put the same kitchen tile on the dining room side so that they could kind of shoot these like inserts with the appropriate kitchen tile in the background uh, mm -hmm. to kind of fix any problems for shots they couldn't get in the kitchen. And Delphine Rig, to her undying credit, is like, 
no. <laughs> she was like, you don't use, you don't use insert shots. Like when, since when do you use insert shots? Like this is not something that you do. Why would you do this? It would be impossible to sort of make it work in the cut. She was like, no, no, no. You just rebuild the kitchen and take the blimp out so that you can actually film everything properly. And to me, it's like, that's like a classic moment of like, yeah, authorship is not this idea of like an individual person who always has intention and always knows what they're doing. It's this like incredible rich back and forth with support from other people and kind of encouragement. And yeah, I just, it's, amazing i think my favorite moment of like authorship strangeness in this film is uh when delphine and chantelle are talking about um what uh the the, the gestures that um that john would or would not make in the context of um i forget actually i forget what the specific context is but the point is chantelle starts talking about something she almost wrote into the script but then didn't put in uh, this is something she didn't. Mm -hmm. And then Defin is like, well, you should have told me this is backstory. You know, this is stuff you should have told me. Whereas, to, you know, to, to Ackerman, it's just detritus or whatever. But to Defin, it's like the yeah. stuff of character. I just thought I found that such a funny, <laughs> a funny distinction. In that kitchen scene that you were mentioning, Kate, I love that um, about Delphine insisting that you couldn't do it another way. She was like, no, the towel is here. The sink is here. And that to me is so much about like living with this film. Mm. Even if you've only seen it once, you have this extremely, you know, um, 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 you know, you have a relationship to where those arguments are and to the sort of dance of gesture of her like accessing those things. And um, certainly if you've seen it over the years, many times you're like, wait, you, there's no way you could like <laughs> move that, you know, towel from yeah, that, no kidding, that right? matchbox from that wall. So yeah. again, yes, the kitchen is iconic. There's nothing you can't change it. I, but I was also going to say, too, another thing that struck me watching the film that I thought was quite fascinating, actually, because, again, I don't really... You know, I, I know Ackerman is is a writer, like she considers herself sort of the writer first. And so you, you know that the screenplay is so important, the script is so important. It was really interesting to see here, though, like the fact that that was still open a little bit for her, that certain things would be shifted or certain things would be figured out amongst the kind of group of the female crew. And what was so interesting for me was hearing all of these women in their kind of, you know, Ackerman's 24, but then a lot of the other women would have been older, um, talking about how their aunts and their mothers did something a certain way. And that that's, for a lot of them, their only kind of um, bank of information to draw on to kind of reproduce these scenes in the film, right? There's like debates about how to veal, um, how to kind of bread the veal. Would you put it in the fridge? Would you cover it with tinfoil? Like, and they're all like, well, my mom would do it this way or my, I mean, to me, it's this like incredible kind of moment of a sort of yeah, like non-official archive, right, of this kind of information, right? It's just such a perfect example of the, the yeah, uh, how to say it, the undervalued, um, the, the ways in which this kind of information would have been undervalued and really only exists in this sort of like oral form of transmission between women, particularly in that period. So I don't know, I thought that was right. great. And and here we all are all these women like making a, a feature film, or, you know, <laughs> and that's what we're doing instead. Like we weren't exactly paying attention to, you know, to learn how to how to bread the veal or like, you know, they're going like, ooh, there's egg and meatloaf. And like Delphine's like, yeah, that's what binds it. <laughs> but they're all like, you know, kind of didn't, you know, didn't quite pay it. You know, they weren't doing it themselves. They were only doing it for this film, which is so devoted to reconstructing a kind of labor that they weren't going to continue to perform. Basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. How many how many 70s filmmakers does it take to make a meatloaf? <laughs> <laughs> it's the question this film is asking. <laughs> 
But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I probably have more things to say about this movie too, but I'm also, I also have plenty to say about the other films. I don't know if there are, did people have other thoughts they wanted to bring in about uh, Auteur de Jean Dielman? Well, we haven't mentioned the fact that it also features Delphine uh, directly talking about, I guess, in sort of an in, in interview format, uh, her intent behind sort of her, behind her participation and sort of already, yes. already framing some of the debates that we're still talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Of... I mean, what is it, the the line about some... Um... Oh, well, I mean, there's some great lines from Delphine anyway. I think that the interviewer asked her, like, why are you a feminist? And like, because I'd have to kill myself if I wasn't, (laughs) you know, something to that effect. She's like, if you're not a feminist, why not kill yourself? (laughs) Good. Um, But anyway, and then she what was the other really uh, interesting part of that. She's talking about, um, yeah, basically just that she like she's I mean, she's such an intelligent, like woman so aware on, on so many levels and she's saying things like you know of course there are male filmmakers who have, have devoted their careers to making films about women like Bergman has made films about women and they're amazing films but you know she's saying but I still fundamentally believe that if you if you have a female filmmaker making a film about prostitution the subject matter will be different like the take on the subject matter will be different at the bare minimum and I, I mean and it's also fascinating because I feel like again I've seen John Dielman so many times that it's easy to forget that at the time the film really was taken up through that lens of it being about um, sex work, right? About prostitution. And I feel like that is kind of, is not really the primary way in which that film is talked about anymore. So it's interesting to hear Delphine Seyrig kind of say, oh, well, this film about prostitution. I was like, oh yeah, right. Um, but anyway, just again, her kind of awareness and commitment to that, um, to supporting that kind of filmmaking is very impressive. Yeah. I would just one thing that just I think this counts as being a auteur de Jean Dillman, even though it's not about the film, mm. <laughs> auteur de Jean Dillman, because it's around it. But the I just was thinking about the uh, uh, Ackerman's um, cameo where she um, plays the the young neighbor who brings the the baby over to be watched. But she has a monologue on the other side of the door that's also about like watching what other women do in the butcher shop so that she, you know, she has no idea what to do. Um, but she's like watches women to figure out like, you know, what kind of meat to buy. So she bought the whatever. So, but that seems exactly like what the the film is about too. Like I'm watching other women um, you know, make make this veal cutlet. <laughs> Um, because it's not going to be, uh, no one else is watching in this way. No one else is watching with this combination of, you know, um, appreciation um, and, and, and there's a difference, you know, it, it's not, um, yeah, it's about loving those, loving the gestures, as she said, yeah. early interview. Yeah. And so, no, I mean, it really is a pretty remarkable document of, of how developed, I mean, Ackerman's thinking was at that period, right? To have approached this film with so much already, yeah, figured out about what she wanted it to be and what she expected it to be. I mean, I just, it's kind of awe-inspiring, really, when you watch this film. Um, but uh, I'm sure we, we can keep adding to this, but do you guys want to, should we transition to the short film? Because I have lots. Yeah, let's do that. I love the short film. Okay, so then the short film that we're going to speak about is called uh, Lettre de Cinéaste, or A Cinéaste Letter. It's from 1984. It's about nine minutes long. Um, it is not, it's an Ackerman film that is not easy to see. Uh, I had never seen it until this week when our, we were able to track down a copy, but it's very difficult to see. 
Uh, it was produced for a um, quote-unquote legendary series of film programs broadcast on uh, what was then called Antenne 2 and is now called France 2, a uh, French television channel. Uh, and the program was called Cinema Cinemas, <laughs> which is a funny name. Um, and it was curated by uh, the filmmaker Claude Ventura, journalist Anne Andrew, and critic Michel Bougeau. Um, and so apparently this was it was kind of known for its like very serious sort of uncompromising programs on um, filmmakers. It would often have kind of interview based editions with uh, filmmakers, but sometimes it would commission self portraits or essay films from filmmakers. Uh, and that's what happened here. They commissioned Ackerman to make this film. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's nine minutes long, man, but it is jam packed with goodness. So I, I assume no one else had seen it either. Right. Patty, had you seen it before? No. no, I had not. I'm I and, and this is you know I had seen obviously the tiny little pieces of it that are are shown in um the film we're gonna get to um yeah. Chantal Ackerman par Chantal Ackerman but no this was just incredible treat yeah yeah oh I love thank you. it thank um, you yeah well thank you to our benefactor who made us watching it possible um. But uh, Simon, I don't know. Do you want to start us off here? What was your take on it? Oh, yeah, this absolutely rocked. This was such a del I mean, I didn't know that we were going to get like another another short sort of in the vein of the uh, of the other two we talked about. But it's oh, man. Yeah, I almost feel like it's 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 really too. I mean, it's too bad when any of this, this stuff is hard to see. But like if I was going to try to indoctrinate someone to Chantal Ackerman thought with like an <laughs> evening of programming. I would might be tempted to start with this because it's such a concentrated dose of all things Ackerman, almost all things. It's true. There's ways in which we could sort of describe the whole film, but but Patty, do you want to give some of your first impressions and then we could try to break it down a bit? <laughs> well, it, it it includes um so first of all it's a letter um and um so that you know sits very nicely in her other epistolary kinds of um you know films that have letter in the title but also you know news from home um and it it repeats something that um i had always loved um a lie that's in much a, a later film which not actually not that much later now that i think about it because um um laziness la paresse where she was uh or la paresse i can't remember what it's called but she's um her and i know you've talked about this on the podcast already um but it's this you know charming little short from an omnibus film seven deadly sins and you know what does ackerman pick laziness <laughs> <laughs> and she says un film il faut se lever. and i'm just like you know i feel like if i if my Students just like, yep, to make a film, you have to get up, you have to get out of bed. <laughs> and so that comes, we see that here. And that is just so unbelievably charming. Um, and, and, and I guess the other important thing, which popped up in some um, um, online um, comment that I saw, um, is we get Chantal in drag. So we get Chantal. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, sitting um, at a table with Aurora Clement, who's sort of playing her as she did in Rendezvous d'Anna, but um, but not playing her because they're also, you know, interacting um, and they're they're kind of taking questions in this like absurdist, you know, kind of um, manic kind of way. Um, and Ackerman has has a little, you know, mustache penciled on and it's pretty darn cute <laughs> so um yeah and i guess the year is is it 84 is that yeah 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 
So the other thing that I just was that that I loved it's and so is is its connection with J'ai fin j'ai foie, which um yeah. I think I saw when it came out. So I must have like in '84 like been a newly you know in newly um or I saw really soon thereafter. Like so it was just and it just was like wow seeing having seen like a funny Ackerman film for the first time. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then that this is from that same moment of her just being being hilarious um, and having like the best comic timing. So, yeah, yeah there's something about her in this moment, particularly with, uh, yeah, the Shorts family business that we already talked about. And I have not seen. So you're going to have to cough up the secret. Oh, link. yeah. Yeah. That one. That <laughs> oh, one is still that one's a little bit more available. Family business. At an absolute Sorry. treat. You're going to love it. It is it is so Wait. delightful. But even there, it's interesting because family business, I think, compares interestingly to this one in the sense that in family business, Ackerman sort of uh, slightly kind of like Charlie Chaplin-esque, like manic performance style thing that she's doing there. A lot of it has to do with um, dialogue and this like very kind of calculated wordplay back and forth uh, between her and Aurora and a few other people. And it's so charming and great. Whereas here, it's interesting. A lot of I think this film was probably shot uh, silently because I believe most of the dialogue is all just voiceover. Um, and so it has a slightly different kind of vibe. You sometimes hear Aurora Clement speaking. Sometimes you hear Ackerman speaking in this kind of letter that's being written. But Ackerman herself in the image, it, she just has such a kind of like loose, funny, like very just I, I, I think a very unique moment here in this film with Ackerman like she just doesn't to, she means she doesn't read this way in any other space as she does specifically in this film when she has the mm -hmm. mustache on and she's like just sort of perform I mean it's unbelievable it is so great <laughs> and also like the comic sensibility is a little different from the other films as well I mean I have to I have to say I think the funny maybe the new funniest shot of any Chantal Ackerman film is that shot of Oh Clément with supposedly with the reels for Les Années 80, 40 hours oh, yeah, of brushes or, one, or whatever it was, one nervous yeah. breakdown. Like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, well, wait, here, maybe we should give people who, again, because it's harder to see, maybe we can give people a bit of a kind of overview of the film. So it, it, again, it's a little hard to break down because it is pretty jam-packed, but it yeah. starts with um, uh, black screen and you hear Ackerman speaking uh, in voiceover about, again, her one of these kind of favorite topics of the prohibition of, making images in the Jewish tradition. Um, and also we should say too, that's not even exactly where the film starts. The film starts with this introduction from the television program. And you hear a male voice saying, uh, listing some of Ackerman's films and saying she's made this very personal body of work. And and then he says, and so now we'll have this, uh, I don't know if he says letter, but now we'll hear from her about sort of news from her uh, kind of career or news from where she's at right now. And so there's this idea that this film is going to be a letter talking about like her kind of current <laughs> situation or current news. And it's fascinating because, of course, the whole film is sort of her trying to sidestep that while also doing it. Right. It's this kind of game she's playing where she's both sort of speaking about projects and films, but at the same time, really kind of denying any yeah. <laughs> sort of set uh, kind of vantage on anything. As, as I'm going well, to say more on that strategy later. <laughs> Exactly. We'll come back to that. She's kind of uh, practicing uh, here a little bit. And then but it starts off with Ackerman in bed. Uh, she's under the covers. And as Patty said, she says something to the effect of if I want to make a film, I have to get up out of bed. So let's get up. So she gets up and then it's her standing in front of a wall and she says you have to stand up. And um, but then very quickly it, it starts to repeat and you see Aurore Clement in the bed and Aurore Clement is repeating Ackerman's lines. And you have this strategy here of 
Aurora Clement is, as you say, maybe playing Ackerman, but then that often shifts from scene to scene because sometimes they'll be speaking to each other. Sometimes, um, yeah, their kind of dialogue will blur together anyway. But Aurora is also repeating her. And then, of course, over the next few scenes, you get these like really funny and sweet um, kind of, yeah, like recommendations or pieces of advice about how to be a filmmaker that are <laughs> alternatively, like on the one hand, totally accurate. Like, as you say, Patty, it's like, yes, you do have to get up out of the bed. Like there's some basic kind of like simple home truths being spun here. But then on the other hand, they are purposely hilarious. Like it's Chantel saying, if you want to make a film, you have to be with other people. Being with other people means that you have to watch them eat. <laughs> like Chantel and Aurora getting into a table with people and watching them eat food. Um, so that's sort of where it starts off. And then it kind of transitions uh, to another point. Okay, and then, yeah, so she's giving lessons about being a filmmaker. Aurora's playing her. She's sort of at a typewriter, manically trying to write as Ackerman speaks in voiceover about how uh, writing this project has been so difficult and they just have to go through all of these drafts. Um, and then, yeah, we get to this kind of like incredible set piece at the middle, which is Ackerman and Aurora sitting next to each other um, in a kind of frontal shot in front of a red checkered, red and white checkered tablecloth table with four phones on it for some reason. We don't know why there are four telephones on the table, but there are. Um, like good old dial phones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The analog phones. And um, yeah. And as the kind of sequence unfolds, Ackerman is sort of taking off her her man's jacket and her tie with his mustache on. And Aurora is sitting next to her wearing a tank top. And at one point, a male hand just comes in off screen uh, under her shirt and like grabs her breast and starts massaging her breast. Ackerman picks up a flower and like knocks it the hand off. And it's all done very kind of lightly and funnily. Right. Like Aurora doesn't seem bothered by it at all. And then the kind of rest of the scene is um, hands come in and start building up the frame around what we're seeing with these boxes that are being stacked in front of the camera. So the frame consistently gets smaller and eventually you end up with just one little vantage on Ackerman and one little vantage on Aurora and the rest is all boxes, um, which is like very charming and funny. And it also is one thing we haven't said yet to to me, this reads very much as Ackerman again, sort of doing her homage to Godard, right? Because here you have very much these sort of reflexive plays with the image, how you're producing the image, but you also have that slightly, it's not trademarked to him, but it's very common in a particular period of his work, which is the fact of the um, content of the image and the dialogue and writing on the screen all happening at the same time and being very difficult to like follow all of them. I had to review each section two or three times to kind of be able to keep up with it. Uh, my um, my favorite yeah. part of that scene is how these yeah these folders or whatever take up most of the frame, and then Ackerman and Drag uh, tossing her lit cigarette through one of the holes, which I think is maybe the most punk rock image in any <laughs> Chantal Ackerman film. I love it. <laughs> it's very Godardian because it has that kind of play, and it you know, and it's um and it's got Ackerman frontality, so there's almost kind of a you know joke on 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 that like and blocking in the image. Um, but with this direct undermining of paternal authority, I feel like this film talks more about the father than um, a lot of other films of That's hers. True. I mean, and it's 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 in this yeah. persona. So, you, yeah, I mean, there's the father like in Portrait of a Young Girl, the end of the 60s in Brussels, where it's like, you know, she can't come to school today her dad died and then like <laughs> she died. Right. So it's like these, she's writing these excuses for each day that she plans to stay out of school. So there is this like killing off of the father, but this is this one. Yeah. So um, th there's a, 
there's a couple things in it like um oh i'm gonna sign the letter um yeah how should i sign it should i sign it chantal should i sign it chantal ackerman should i sign it just ackerman oh my dad wanted a son for the name so i'll sign it that Mm -hmm. so there's this like you know just sort of legacy question so that you you talking about godard kind of reminded me of that and also oh and then they sing the song they sing the song that comes in golden age oh i know the 80s yeah, a song from the 80s, yeah. I just love okay. that bittersweet button on what's otherwise been a pretty wacky short. I think it's a, another wonderful note. Yeah. Oh, the song, yeah. Well, no, the, specifically um, her yeah, ending with uh, with the, this discussion of how to how to sign off or whatever. Oh, yeah, it's true. I mean, in there, again, you like to me, that's the kind of apex of or the culmination of a lot of the things that she's doing throughout the short, which has to do with, again, this question of like, how does she signal her own authorship, right? Like this is a letter, a cineast letter, right? So what makes her a cineast? How does she communicate that? How does she perform it? Um, while at the same time, she's frequently undercutting it, right? Um, the And then at the end there, what it, it ends with this idea of like, I'll sign it, I'll sign it Ackerman because my father wanted a boy. I mean, it, it is this like kind of very, um, how to say it, uh, this like perfectly condensed example of some of the difficulties around the idea of like the feminine uh, like voice as the kind of authorial voice right this this sort of like spa- this idea that uh, women are not um, expected to be in the kind of realm of the symbolic or welcomed into the realm of the symbolic in the same kind of way and so she like is putting on this figure of signing as though she were a boy in order to do that I mean that's I feel like only one of the many strategies she's using, she's using here but it was fascinating um what were the other things i was going to mention too um oh i was going to say too the scene where you see them uh, the boxes being built up in the frame um she's over over the voiceover ackerman is talking quite rapidly about how uh when she had gone in to meet with like a movie the movie company director or something presumably about money uh, uh, the company director asks her why she's switching from she's only ever made slow films why is she switching from slow films to fast films now um and you know she's i mean it's fascinating she says something like there's no change in continuity but rather continuity and change um you know she's saying i I don't want to repeat myself but all i do is repeat myself and again these ideas like she's very cognizant of the fact that authorship as a framework tends to want to kind of freeze people in particular modes of being particular modes of production and she's always pushing against that right in every kind of way she can which i just thought is amazing she Uh, does also um you mentioned you know she takes up the sort of prohibition on the graven image and then she comes back um to that in the end and sort of says you know if you um turn and I'm I'm looking at the text now. If you turn um, a letter um, into an image, you kill it. And then she says, then, you know, we we Jews don't have an image. She has this funny thing about Israel. Like she's like, we don't have a country, but now we do because we had to, the subtitle says we have to park our arses somewhere. I have to like listen to the French and see what that says. But um, (laughs) but then she says, if, you know, you kill an image, if you... Turn a letter into an image, let you kill it. So let's kill it. Bang, bang. So it's yeah. pretty, you know, like that again, that that um like the the punk rock <laughs> moment, right? The throwing this the cigarette or like, let's do it, let's break the prohibition, let's yeah. kill it, bang, bang. 
Yeah, and also this kind of tension, I think, that runs throughout this and then also in the Chantal Ackerman, Varshal Ackerman, between between the ideas of communication via the written word and communication via the image and her kind of perpetually putting them in tension with each other to highlight what one can do that the other can't, but also sort of like undercutting each other as like, so neither is final, right? Like neither is the kind of complete, um, That's right. you know, idea. Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I also, I just thought Simon would love the reference that comes up at the end where she's talking about how, uh was it a story she's saying you know how can you like keep your friends happy when you're making films and she, she's like i made when i was making uh the 80s or something i forget what film she's talking oh no she's tutu nui yeah i made tutu nui and a friend of mine came by and they had just seen indiana jones the raiders of the lost ark and they said now that's a film <laughs> she's like what are you doing with this tutu nui Ackerman says well, it was that was a bro, a real blow, but I carried on. And then she says, you know, but you have to ask <laughs> yourself, like, how do you keep making films when you're not making Indiana Jones <laughs> or Gremlins? So funny because Gremlins is back in the news with you know <laughs> the um, kid performance, um, and and I, I have this like I don't know I I had to some I was doing this weird thing the other day where people just ask you random questions like what film has everybody seen that you have and I'm like gremlins <laughs> um so it's funny which it wasn't always... it wasn't actually a very good answer because there's there's a whole lot on that list of um uh, 80s mid 80s films that I just was like held off on even though it was like when I should have been going to the movies too as just, opposed to makes, watching films it makes you realize just how start, kind of strange it like it to me it, it feels like a kind of call from another universe to hear about an Ackerman film in the same timeline as like Raiders of the Lost Ark like it just it they do not feel like timelines that speak to each other so it's fascinating to hear that I also find it fascinating whenever you hear Ackerman speaking about like very popular cinema um like I, I, a while ago i can't remember if i mentioned it on the podcast but a while ago i came across an interview with her speaking about how this would have been like the latter part of the 2000s her speaking about how one of her favorite blockbusters of recent years had been the michael mann remake of miami vice which i absolutely i love that film and i know the internet is filled with people who love it too and like Ackerman, like hearing Ackerman talk about how much she really loved this kind of popular film object, like it, it just to me, it, it speaks to a kind of side of her that I think she often didn't play up in her own kind of performance of the kind of authorial self, you know, was this relation to popular cinema. We were really deprived that we never got uh, Ackerman as like the co-host of a public access film review show. Can you imagine? She would have been so great. Oh, that would have been priceless. Oh, my God. Because every time that I see or read her commentary on any film, it's always some of the best thing uh, things I've ever seen or heard about that film. Yeah, right. No, a hundred percent. Oh yeah, this this movie's great. I really I do hope that it becomes more available as part of the kind of general push of Ackerman restorations and whatnot. I I do hope this film makes its way into the world because it is absolutely charming. I might have to up- respect copyright law. Yeah, don't say that. You'll have to re- remove that from this episode, Simon. You're creating a paper trail. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know. Should we uh, should we switch a little bit to uh, the Chantel Ackerman par Chantel Ackerman? Let's do it. Yeah, I think that would be great because I feel like, um, you know, it's very there's a similar – you're going to introduce it properly, but just, you know, there's there's similar themes, and it's very fascinating to um, – to see, you know, the Leto Dunsinias as a kind of um, 
uh, you know, rehearsal for what would become Chantal Ackerman, par Chantal Ackerman, but without the shtick, right? Or there's still some shtick, but it's much toned down. <laughs> yeah, it is quite different. Yeah, it's funny. It's another one of those things where I really would not, we, I think I sort of knew loosely that this film dealt with the, sorry, when I say this film, I mean, Legend of and Yes, dealt loosely with these questions of kind of authorship and being a filmmaker. But um, I hadn't seen it, obviously, though. So it's fascinating to kind of see when you put it next to Chantal Ackerman, Par Chantal Ackerman, how much they do speak to each other. It really does feel like she's kind of working out some of the strategies in the first film that she uses slightly differently in the second one. Um, okay, but so this film, uh, Chantal Ackerman, Par Chantal Ackerman, is from 1996. It was made as part of the uh, Cinéma de Notre Temps series, uh, which is a very famous uh, series produced for French television. Uh, its original run was from 1964 to 1972. Uh, the later run was from 1989 to 2018. Uh, and it, it basically had filmmakers making kind of hour-long programs about other filmmakers. Um, and I mean, it is, this is a kind of incredible archive. Again, the early years particularly are, are very predominantly uh, like white French filmmakers, male filmmakers. It really it starts to shift a little bit, but it's still still always kind of that realistically. But there are some amazing uh, like Claire Denis made shot one about Jacques Rivet, which is like an incredible episode. So there's some great stuff in there. But um, anyway, uh, let me and I think that was like, yeah, I, I was going to say because it was sort of her documentary anyway we won't talk Claire Denis that's the next that's the next podcast oh god <laughs> yeah the rate we're going it'll be like six years from now we can start a the no. Denis decade um yeah the Denis decade all right I have to we have to finish this podcast before we're allowed to talk about any other one yes yeah. okay but no I was going to say okay so sorry let me just I'll give a bit more information about the cinema de notre song so uh yeah, the program with these filmmakers making films about other filmmakers um, was generally supposed to sort of avoid the kind of voiceover um, talking head interview format. They would kind of try to encourage uh, filmmakers to like get into the head of the other filmmaker, like that the aesthetic and form of the film was meant to kind of engage at that level. Uh, and it was the show was sort of originally started and run by Janine Bazin, uh, Andre Bazin's wife and Andre Lebach, who was one of the editors of Coyote Cinema, I believe. Um, and they, these two approached uh, Ackerman to direct an episode and she ran through kind of a list of people she wanted to do. And they said they'd all been done before. And then she said, well, why not me? Why can't I be a subject? And they said, sure. So you can direct this, you can make a film about yourself for the series. And as far as I could tell, that was the only time that ever happened. I mean, I was skimming through the, the list. I couldn't find another example where someone else directed an episode about Isn't themselves. Isn't JLG, is JLG par JLG? Is that or is it? I don't I'm know sure if that was for series. No, yeah, we could. We should look that up. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was not. But anyway, clearly Ackerman references this film, uh, GLG Pro GLG, in her film. So again, there's this kind of like ongoing um, performance of her relationship to to Godard, and she says it really freaked her out seeing it. She was like, "How would I? I'm not going to be able to make something as good as that." Uh, all right notes here um let's see and so yep so she gets underway making this film and um i don't know i guess maybe just as some broad overview she starts uh there's a, a kind of extended 
interview with herself at the beginning where she sets up a number of things and then we move into a, a slightly different register but um we can break all of that down but yeah i, don't know. I mean simon I, you had not seen it correct uh no and um just to break things down a little further um so i mean you could kind of discuss this film as a self-portrait as a either a self-portrait in two parts or as two attempts at a self-portrait i think is how she frames it and i have to say no she says you know she says three even so we there just go. remember we'll come back to the third one right. at the end yeah um and i was really i was really struck by mainly the first let's say 17 minutes or so which is the the portion of 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 the film which is just ackerman speaking uh well i shouldn't say just ackerman her dog makes an appearance um but uh <laughs> or someone's dog someone's <laughs> i dog. wasn't sure whose dog that was <laughs> yeah uh it's very docile whoever's it is um I, I think I watched that segment of the movie maybe five times, and I think I watched the montage segment perhaps twice, because to me, most of the interest was real. I mean, it is a very dense... Uh, it's I, I have my notes here. I started writing, and I didn't know how long this... I thought she was just going to be talking for like a couple of minutes, and then we were going to get to, you know, this the film speaking for themselves or whatever. So I had wrote down, um, okay, take this clip for the show, and then we can offer a translation for the audience, not knowing that she was going to keep talking for another 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just scratched that out. And yeah, the way it evolves from... Uh, explaining her seemingly her predicament, like she's. I love the way she's framed it, like she's, she's like she's shot herself in the foot by by agreeing to do this, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then evolves into what turns out to be like quite a, a almost a freewheeling monologue about like her process and about the entire concept and you know t taking herself through her back through her career through this like really twisted route that took me a couple of viewings to even parse. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, I have definitely lots of things to say, but I bet Patty, do you want to say anything about that? Maybe that opening section? Um, well, um, I was going to say something about the flip section. Oh, no, go, go because, ahead. Go ahead. We don't um, have to go in order. Go for it. But, but yeah, but I, but I, but I think, you know, obviously it's framed by that. So there's, there's resonances between, um, the text that she writes and reads, um, and sort of talks about um, now I'm getting confused whether she actually says here I made films because I was a failed writer, but that that is what she says in Letter de Cineas, Letter yeah. de Cineas. So um, or like I you know I didn't I couldn't be a writer I wasn't going to succeed as a writer, um, and so there's a really you know um, tactile like she has sheets of paper in front of her she's you know it's it's it, there's a computer in the back it's very much like the mise-en-scene of like you know the the non-fun part of making the movies which is like you know <laughs> thinking them up and writing them so there's a there's that um but just about this film because it is was in circulation um uh through um in the U.S. Um, through uh, Icarus for first through first run Icarus, um, it was a way to see films by Ackerman that were hard to see. Um, so it very notably, and I don't know um, you, if you were going to say this, but very notably, um, the, the the credit in the film is you know um, this you know film Chantal Ackerman by Chantal Ackerman featuring and then there's a list instead of um actors um the names of the films that are 
excerpted in her film. So she, you know, her original idea is to just, I'll make a, a film that's about me would be about my films. And to go back to our, our discussion at the very beginning of the podcast about the, you know, um, authorial inscription or the um, autobiographical dimension. Um, but then there's also another title card that says, and without, so, you know, featuring, and then like what credits list says, like the things that are not in this film. So of course, <laughs> then they become this really structuring absence, but it's yeah. then a complete filmography. So I was pretty obsessed, you know, in those, you know, whatever VHS days um, with like <laughs> getting a hold of certain films that are featured in this film. And I had written about um, a portrait of a young girl at the end of the 60s in the um, in the in Brussels. And that was just notoriously not in circulation. But the incredible like one of the, the set piece of the film is just smack in the middle of this one. And it's just like amazing I know so um so not to say that I'm not fascinated as Simon is with the the text um and the <laughs> and the the weird way that you know we stay with her in a room which um her reading this text and it periodically goes dark and comes back in <laughs> um her of her just kind of you know insisting that this rather casually filmed um but very specifically composed text mm -hmm. be a goodly portion of this hour-long um you know emission <laughs> um broadcast yeah yeah i mean i find that i like simon i feel like i i after reading a bit more of other people speaking about the um the film as a whole i've come to understand I've come to realize that I feel like I underestimated some of the things that she's doing with the clips because I really loved it while watching it, but I just hadn't hadn't dug into it that much. For me, on first viewing, the stuff that really grabbed me, I think, also was the was the first section. Um, I'll come back to the clips, but the um, I, the first section again, it's like Ackerman doing this sort of virtuosic performance as a writer. I mean, it just the the writing is stunning and she's doing so much right like, I mean from minute one I think she says something like uh what does she say here uh you know she says making a film about one's work opens a lot of questions uh and she says there are those who would be more comfortable with the as ifs um as if the director could give the truth about his work as if he could explain the impulse to creativity I have a hard time doing as if uh, but I tried. Right. And it's interesting there. Right. Again, from the beginning, she's kind of speak, like she speaks of the male, the male director it must necessarily be a male director like the as if. Uh, and and again, right from the beginning, she's saying, I don't have this access to my own <clears throat> process, like my own kind of creative ability. I can't articulate it in words for you. But of course, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean that she isn't responsible for kind of shepherding it into being. Right. And so it's like this interesting tension between these two kind of things like even the fact that she calls this three attempts at a self-portrait it's like why would you have to do an attempt at a self-portrait right? I mean the, the you know presum presumptively people have access to their own interiority but of course she's making the opposite point that it isn't it's always going to be an attempt and it will always be a partial attempt you know maybe not necessarily a failed attempt but it will never reach up to this kind of ideal of how people imagine uh they have this relationship to themselves um and there's also just sort of like great jokes throughout where Ackerman says something like referencing what uh, Patty referenced before, actually, where she says, you know, now that I'm a bit older, I don't want to show myself on screen. Like when I was thinking about how to make this film, I didn't want to show myself on screen um, as when I was younger. But then, of course, and she says, like, um, 
she says, surely it's a question of age. But then, of course, you realize, like, she's showing herself on film for this whole 17 minutes, right? It's like she's very much sort of always saying one thing and then doing the opposite. And you are kind of struggling as a listener to keep up with all of it, right? She always has sort of multiple things happening. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to say here, too, about this section that I really loved is when she's talking about... Um, like she'll kind of start off by saying, well, first I wanted to do this. And then I was thinking that, and I thought if I did this, then this would happen. And she starts like describing or reporting on her own thought processes um, as if she thinks this is going to help her kind of like write the film or come up with some idea for the film. But it often, it just sort of goes off in a kind of strange direction. Like she talks about how she sees a woman across the way all the time doing Tai Chi. And now she'll make, she wants to make a film about a woman who does Tai Chi all the time. And I just I, I love the fact that like even her picture of thoughts, like she tries to go to this interior space. And even as she tries to describe her own thought processes, they still seem to be escaping her control. Right. She doesn't. It's this like really kind of genius way of undercutting the idea of the artist as the marshal of their own kind of creative processes. It's always this picture of it getting away from her. I just I love it. It's amazing. And the thing about the cow seller, too, that like all film critics are equated with cow sellers here. <laughs> Incredible. Mm, shots fired and uh they've landed folks loves the cow seller too right i don't know we might cow have seller. to explain that yeah, it's okay, like, i'm trying yeah. to remember the cow seller thing so she's saying something about how like first it starts off as a parable right and this is the other thing that can be very challenging to follow with her thinking is she's often speaking in like multiple registers yeah, she's moving between the abstract and she yeah, introduces it as a, a jewish an old jewish joke i think that's it, right? Yeah, it's a Jewish joke about someone who's trying to sell a cow. And and then 10 minutes later, you realize that she's talking about, or not 10 minutes later, a few minutes later, you realize that she's talking about the cow is now her film. And someone is trying to sell this cow slash her film. And the cow seller is always better at selling her film than she is. And uh, the cow seller is going to sell the film, going to sell the cow by talking about it. It's like commitment to the second commandment in Judaism and stuff. Just very funny, right? She's just like this is just this multiple play of her film as a cow is great. But again, it's just another way of of speaking about her films, but like three or four times removed, right? It's not it's always sort of like reflections of reflections of reflections as she talks. Yeah. I think that again, this would be another uh fine selection for if you were to try to get someone into Ackerman. Um I would be curious to see how like the the, the film, I would imagine, has to land differently based on whether you've seen the film as being excerpted or not, right? And the vast majority of people sitting down to watch this film will not have seen 90% of those. No, they may have seen John Dielman. They may have seen uh, Meetings with Anna. But that's that will probably mm. be it. And, I've, and you know, we've seen now, I think, everything that is in this film. Um, mm-hmm. and so for, for, I guess, yeah, I think, I think we have, yeah, I think for, I, I, I guess the reason I, I can't help but gravitate towards that first section is because as, 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 uh, stirring as I did find the clip section, uh, without maybe the context that you'll get into for me, it did kind of play as like Ackerman's greatest hits, you know, Oh yeah. Here's the mm-hmm. shoe polish bit. Here's, here's, yeah. here's John Dielman in the kitchen. Here's the dance sequence from, mm-hmm. uh, from uh, portrait of a young girl. Uh, it's all here, baby. Yeah. You know, uh, and I, I, mean, <laughs> I did like it in that sense, but yeah, I, I'm, I'll, I'll be happy to hear more elucidating the, uh, the selection and, and how it interacts with the, uh, with the intro. Well, I mean, even, even that idea of like the fact that she chooses to primarily uh, comprise this film, that's meant to be a kind of um, 
uh, not exactly, yeah, like a film about her filmmaking process or whatever about her as a filmmaker. Um, she chooses to, by and large, just fill it with clips of the films themselves, right, to make the film speak about themselves. I mean, that's interesting at any number of levels. I mean, at the one level, it's interesting because, again, it's her eschewing the idea that that the fact of a filmmaker speaking critically about their thoughts or their production of a film is somehow a more important like or more integral critical text than the film themselves right it's like she's kind of trying to deny that it's like no the film itself is the statement you don't need this sort of like imagined pure statement from my mind you know quote unquote um so i think there's that level um there's also i think as you say Simon, rightfully this idea that it's fascinating that she chooses these films that that at the time especially were not always that available like were not so easy to see and so at the same time as it seems to be kind of revealing something, uh, showing these clips from her, it also can really only, I think, for almost every viewer, highlight what they don't know about Ackerman, right? What they haven't seen, what isn't accessible through this format. Um, it's like, as you say, Patty, the listing of the films that aren't in it, right? It's Ackerman is doing as much, she's doing as much to remind you of the limits of this kind of format of the filmmaker, quote unquote, speaking about themselves. The fact that that can only go so far um, she's always trying to show that there's more beyond the edges of what she's discussing. Um, and then, so yeah, I think it would be a very different experience if you hadn't seen the films. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, and this, I should give credit to the person who I saw talking about this. I believe it was, um, Cyril Begin, who's a French critic who I don't know, but he, he writes about, uh, this film in that, uh, book that was pointed out by the Centre Sans Poppy to the autoportrait of, um, Ackerman book. Um, he makes the, he makes a really good point, which I would not have thought of about the clips, which is the fact that if you pay attention to the to the like order in which Ackerman deploys the clips, often it it will read um, as though how to say it like you'll have a scene of a mother and then you'll have a scene of a daughter and then you'll have a scene of a father and then you'll have a scene of like Ackerman as the daughter and then you'll have a scene of one of Ackerman's kind of um, stand-ins as the daughter and then you'll have a scene of Ackerman's actual mother and it ends up reading as like a you could read it quite literally as sort of like a family portrait but all mediated through the films that Ackerman has made about these figures in her family or the figure of the family right so again it's the same time as it feels a bit opaque maybe you could also read it as like a family album which I, I thought was kind of amazing I was like that's a that's a fascinating idea right before we go to the clips we see um the 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 discussion in Ackerman's text is about her grandmother who was yeah. an artist and made these paintings and that they, they were huge paintings and then there and then we go in right we kind of enter this space that she's positioned and I think don't we start with the Histoire d'Amérique? The yes, yeah. We start with, but we don't start with the the tale about forgetting the words of the prayer, or do we? No, that is that is yeah. there, and so and I think okay, yeah. So that bit about like my story is full of gaps and links, so I have breaks and links, but yeah, keep going. I don't, ha and I don't even have a child, right? So what she says. So, so there's this, you know, I think um, the beauty of of just the excitement of seeing Ackerman, like this is the 90s when, you know, there she's making films and you don't really, you know, I don't know, there's not a lot of like, there's no internet <laughs> to like watch, you know, her on YouTube. So this amazing um, exposure to her um, and her direct address to the camera, all of that is just so intimate. And then, as you said, Kate, kind of her kind of, talking about fumbling with the assignment and like that you know there's this and then 
entering. And I, I do think there's a, a lovely um, way in which I hadn't thought of it totally as an album, but there's there's resonances in, in how she cuts um, from clip to clip that are that are really lovely. Yeah. I mean, I also I just found it really beautiful often to see how she would recut her own films. I mean, I found it really affecting like these the cut from, you know, Jean Dielman sitting at the kitchen or and she gets up or something to the cut of um, the women standing in the field in, uh, you know, post-Soviet uh, Russia or wherever she's filming in that specific moment. And you can see the echoes between the way that Jean dresses when Jean goes outside and these women standing in the field. And and then the the amazing sequences from Dest where you have like women standing in their own kitchens sort of looking off like she she just does a really fabulous job of kind of drawing out these echoes across her films. And sometimes it's more obvious and sometimes it's less obvious. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's some really beautiful uh, sequences in there. I don't know, Simon, if there were any ones that you particularly uh, liked or anything. Um, I'm trying to think here. Just trying to go through mine. They kind of blur together in your mind a bit. It's hard to. They, keep they do. Yeah. They especially blur if, like us, you you watched a lot of these a lot of these films in in dense chunks. Discuss them on a podcast. Yes, exactly. Well, I mean, like one that's amazing is she um, shows Jean polishing the shoes, and then cuts to her as an 18 year old, like maniacally oh, yeah, over polishing yeah, her that. legs or whatever, right? Um, so, you know, it's just like little things like that. These kind of like lovely touches. Um, let's see. What else was I going to say here? Um, la, 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 la. I, I have to say that seeing the scene of her reading the letter from Fernand in isolation really made Fernand mm. seem much more annoying than I remembered. <laughs> Not flattering. Yeah, Fernand. Fernand. <laughs> like, you should get married again. And you know, <laughs> exactly. It's true. Um Oh, what else was I, there was one other thing I was going to say here about this. Uh, oh, I'll just ahead. jump in there that the 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 the, um, the letter from Fernand in Canada. Um, we also see that being directed right in. Um, yes, that's in, right. In Autour de Jean Delman, and and it's just lovely because Ackerman reads the letter, you know, showing um, uh, Delphine how to do that kind of breathless reading that you know is so memorable um and it's and it's yeah again this sort of reversal of roles you know um yeah with her doing a text that is she's so different in her presentation than delphine um and that conveying that kind of use of language that like almost hilarious and then delphine you know, mimics that like very precisely in the actual take yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> So it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I don't know. It's I was also trying to think about this film, too, a little bit from the perspective of this question, which, you know, was one of the sort of original framing uh, angles for this episode, which was, you know, Ackerman as filmmaker or like Ackerman on filmmaking, right? Talking about filmmaking. And again, it's kind of interesting here that she really she it's funny because to me, there's an interesting tension there where Ackerman often or, you know, regularly, I think throughout her career, worked as a teacher. Like she took different gigs teaching uh, film in different parts of the world. And so she she was familiar with that and she did that kind of work. But it's interesting whenever she's given this sort of public opportunity to record anything that would involve a kind of like stand, an authorial stance around teaching someone something like this is how you do X. This is how you do Y. Ackerman is is really resistant to that. Right. I mean, here you don't have. I mean, I guess in in a letter of Cine, a letter to Cineas, you have like some sort of jokey stuff about what a filmmaker does, but here you don't even really have that. I mean, she's really 
sort of stepping back from that. And that's a fairly common, like, I mean, in the cineast and, or what's it called? C Cinema de Notre Temps series, it is fairly common to have filmmakers sort of like expounding on their clinical process, you know, encouraging others to think their way about thinking about film. And Ackerman is just absolutely not, which again, I find it's a kind of touching gesture, right? It's sort of freeing. It's like, what you want to do is what you want to do. What I want to do is what I want to do. It doesn't have to be, we don't have to replicate each other. I don't, I, I don't know. I quite like that. The last thing I wanted to say about this film, too, was I was just going to add, oh, to make sure we didn't forget, was the fact, as we brought up earlier, that there are three attempts at uh, making this into a self-portrait, right? And the third one, she says at the very end, she says, she's sitting in a different chair, um, and she says, uh, my last attempt at a self-portrait, um, and she says, my name is Chantal Ackerman, I was born in Brussels, that's the truth, it's true. And then she has this sort of enigmatic smile at the end and it, it ends, right? I love it. It's like this idea of you boil, if you try to boil everything down to what is true, you end up with very little at the end of it, right? This kind of commitment to some sort of truth really narrows things, which I thought was like a, a lovely touch. And I wonder if the, because I thought a lot about that, um, and I wonder if the I was born in Brussels um, is true does speak to the compilation of clips as a kind of you know understanding of family history that just then begins or that you know leads to her being born there which is both a truth and a um you know a, a something of something that um inscribes you know kind of cataclysmic historical um changes that are also not registered in the clip reel that we saw in direct terms, but in these, you know, silences and waiting and displacement and isolated, you know, women in isolation of various kinds um, leading up to, you know, this truth of this is my name and I was born in Brussels. So place and space, which I guess is the title of Jean Dielman again, too, just like here's a name, here's a place yeah what else you know mm. yeah exactly yeah it's sort of what what more is there really yeah it's it's interesting um and we also I just wanted to just add to because I think we we didn't say it so directly before but the uh the, the point where she introduces uh the fact that her grandmother um painted these paintings and and there you get I think maybe the closest that you get to sort of Ackerman nodding towards like yeah these sort of large-scale historical catastrophes right um and the grandmother says what she says oh no um the grandmother wrote in the diary right and this comes back in later films of Ackerman's that we haven't spoken about yet but the grandmother also wrote in a diary and Ackerman you know says something like because she because she wrote in the diary um I always think to myself because she did that I never had to think I'm a woman and so therefore with the implication being that you know because her grandmother sort of her grandmother felt like she had to express her thoughts into this sort of private space to kind of, yeah, like keep track of, prove her own existence. Ackerman feels like she never had these kind of limitations that prevented her from, I don't know, yeah, expressing her, the thoughts that she wanted to express in this sort of externalized way. She never had these limitations. And so it's a, it's a very kind of, yeah, melancholic, like elegiac um, sense there, right, as you go into the the beginning of the clips but um but i don't know i mean I, it was a lovely film i really i really enjoyed it actually more than i thought i would i i only i think i'd seen it once many years ago and i was like oh yeah you know it's interesting whatever but i, I must not have given it very much thought at the time because it's a it's a, a fascinating film I, I think also for anyone who is new to ackerman i think this is a good choice for how it 
it offers a couple ways in in terms of like potentially like initial readings for her movies when she's talking about um how she's interested in the nothing um that are you know mm-hmm. the, the things that other people lie that's a pretty handy way in to like again not ev- i don't think yeah. there's any one statement that will get you in in on the ground floor of every ackerman project but that's a that's a pretty good one and also i i, I felt something of that also even in her discussion of this idea of of these large paintings and she even she even gets stuck on the specific phrasing of it and that also seems analogous to to her approach although she doesn't state that directly mm-hmm. um yeah i don't know i think yeah. I, I, and i and i i think also as someone who hadn't seen her movies before that the uh i think that that the the montage uh section would be quite i think hopefully productively overwhelming yeah, one would imagine so, right? And, too, and we should make clear, too, Ackerman does not label the films as they come up on the screen. So if you hadn't seen these films, it's very possible you would read some as being shots from the same film or different films when they're actually from the same film. Like she really it's like they're all sort of blended together in a way that relies on prior knowledge um, to differentiate. Yeah, some films show up more than um, once, some only show up. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah definitely. Um, and then, yeah, I just want the last thing, because you reminded me of it there, Simon, was the phrasing that the grandmother, the phrasing that Nellie, her mother, would say about the grandmother's paintings when Ackerman would ask about them was the mother, Nellie would say, well, they were huge. That was sort of all she remembers about them was they were massive. And she said they had faces in them. And I remember the faces looking at me, like the faces watched me. And I don't know, for for me, though, that really like captures something about Ackerman, right? This idea of like faces watching you, it it feels very... Yeah, Ackerman. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we probably could uh, could start wrapping up here. I think uh, we've we've made our way through all the films. So um, I don't know. Uh, uh, Patty, Simon, does anybody want to throw anything in here as we well, get to the close? I was just gonna. Maybe this won't go anywhere. But my question would be, you know, we in between these three films, we see um, when we're when we're thinking about uh, Ackerman and filmmaking, or Ackerman as filmmaker in the process, etc. We see her in the mid seventies and the mid eighties and the mid nineties across these films yeah. i was wondering if uh if if anyone had any 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 thoughts or observations about i don't know the evolution of her um concept of portraiture or work or anything like that uh, across yeah. these it's interesting and then again also the mid-2000s right because she's editing yeah that's right of course. To, yeah. and then right so this four periods that's a really good question um three attempts at portraiture right <laughs> <laughs> so of these different i mean i think there's something really um it's fairly rare that she's in her films, um, although she's, as we sort of started with, all over her films. You know, the voice is there in the, um, in the, you know, the dialogue and all of that. Um, so, I think that she's in each of these spaces doing what you were talking about, Kate, um, of like refusing to offer the, you know, here's the, here's the truth about me. Um, um, and to me, the embodiment, the sort of presence of her body, um, is, um, again, you know, quite moving. Um, what does she say in, in the in the funny part of the movie that we hadn't, none of us had seen before, the, the letter from a filmmaker? Um, she was like, okay, I filled, fil- finished this one film and then I didn't have anything to do. I, um, I, I put on some pounds, basically, was the implication. Was <laughs> yeah. that what you got? Yeah. Something like that, yeah. 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 There was just this idea of like between films, like just going on living and being and enduring and, you know, obviously struggling with the things that she struggled with. So 
there's something about that just kind of like there she is and um and 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 in the two that she made because she obviously didn't make the Sammy Fry documentary um using that frontality that we see in all of her films um also as a way of presentation um you know, which I expose is a familiar way of people like direct address to camera. I'm going to tell you some truth, but in the context of Ackerman and, you know, there's furniture involved. And as you both mentioned in the uh, little film, you know, that that frame becomes blocked to us, that she's also, you know, using that. Um, she's in, she's, she's in her films um, in, in a way that I think is, you know, speaks to how we were complicating an idea of authorship as, you know, this expressive mind that it all comes out of, or as something that the critic constructs across a whole oeuvre that, you know, you have to find these keys. She's just like, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm here. And I'm not entirely in command of what the bigger picture is, but I'm showing up, you know, both physically, um, and, um, you know, with language and, and images, which are all, you know, explicitly thematized in yeah. um, all three films. Yeah. I, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Simon's question is a good one. I don't know if I have a fully developed answer, but I feel like the, in addition to the great points that Patty just made, I think one thing I was thinking about a little bit um, this week, and maybe it's just because we're, I've been teaching this material uh, about Cabell and we were reading Emerson and the students were reading Emerson's self-reliance essay, which I know in the United States is taught as this sort of like economic self-reliance American philosophy of rugged individualism, which, you know, is debatable that that's what that essay is about. And Cabell certainly doesn't read it that way. But anyway, it's there's some fascinating points in it, one of which is that like Emerson's idea of genius or the kind of, we should say, the American transcendentalist idea of genius Um is not explicitly not about the idea of a kind of like artist who makes great productive works, right? Instead, it's it's the idea of being a receptive person that everyone has genius, that 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 our genius is this quality of being receptive to what is beyond us, and that some people are more in touch with that than others. And I feel like Ackerman is really a beautiful example of that, right? I mean, in every way, like she, you know, we've talked about her documentary practice as her feeling like she uh, becomes this kind of like registration device for kind of seismic things that are happening around her. And she only sees the meaning of them later. Um, or also, uh, what's the other one I was going to say there? Um, oh, the fact, just, you can like Claire Atherton talking about how when they would edit the films, you know, her sense over the years was that Ackerman, for her, it was really important to sort of just go with the flow of what was happening, right? To like trust oneself on set, to kind of trust one's openness that Ackerman would never arrive to a film with some idea that she was going to use X strategy to get X outcome. It was not like that, right? It was always the sort of living through it and then kind of thinking about it retrospectively. And I think, I think it's beautiful that as Ackerman goes through her career, she ends up kind of, I think, embodying that um, element of her relationship to her art more explicitly in the way she speaks about her practice, right? Which I do think you see in the the films as these kind of, as this goes on. Um, but, you know, always as with Ackerman, there's always some melancholy there too, right? I don't think it's that Ackerman is just performing the idea that we don't have kind of mastery over our own subjectivity. I think she's also mourning that idea frequently, right? Like she often wants to feel more in control. She wants to feel more 
yeah, able to speak on her own behalf, able to speak for her own ideas than she really can sometimes. And I think this is what you you get sometimes when she kind of speaks about the critic slightly critically, but also wistfully. I think, you know, like she's a little not envious, but she she sometimes I think wishes that she like she says in one of these films here. I like my films more when I hear critics speak about them than when I speak about them. Right. There's anyway, just all to say, I think there's it goes back and forth. But um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think, Patty, earlier when you were talking about how there is um, sort of the, the effect of, of her death on sort of uh, critical perception or scholarship, et cetera, um, it can't help but color our perception of these movies also, of course, and to a certain mm -hmm. extent. And you know, I couldn't help think about her screen presence in this film compared to in the 80s i mean there's you know again you don't want to read too much into things based on things that happen later etc but there is like there's an intensity to her screen presence in uh in yeah. ackerman by chantal ackerman and part of that is down to framing and and things like that but and you know the fact that we get so much close up on on her face and it's like it's an intense bit of movie when she's mm -hmm. when she's discussing about this there's 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 a heft and um not that there wasn't any melancholy in uh, in an earlier work, but but it it does feel like she's coming for at, she's coming at these familiar questions from a slightly different register than before, and it's it, it's tough yeah. not to notice when you sit them side by side. Yeah, certainly right. I mean, also we we talked about this in a previous episode, but that Ackerman in that period in the early '80s there had this like incredible, like insanely productive run and then she had a her first major bout of a kind of manic depressive break right and then she her practice had to shift um by necessity a little bit after that and so i think you you maybe kind of see hints of that here a little bit but again i think ackerman also is playing with it a little in the chantelle uh part Chantel film because it's like she again she always has that kind of enigmatic smile or like you see her breakdown in laughter at one point while reading her notes and then she says I don't know, to herself or whoever is running the camera, she says, oh, I'll do that take again, right? It's like this directing herself live. <laughs> She's like, oh, I have to do that again. Um, I don't know. It's great. <laughs> I, I'm I'm moving back to that. I just thought what you said, uh, Kate, about kind of the, the receptivity is, is mm -hmm. so make you know, I'm just like reliving watching these films again with that. And I think that's so, so right. And just that moment when Chantal says something to her and she like looks down and, you know, kind of. Feels or Delphine, Delphine says something to her, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, um, that's okay. And, and, and I was saying before, it almost looked like she was going to tear up. Um, and, and you just really, but you like see that rhythm and then she meets the gaze again. And that's, you know, what she does in, in both of those later films is like, and then meets a gaze that's, you know, also her own and pretty, a pretty critical one probably too. So. Well, yeah, it's fascinating, right? I mean, she always is sort of, there's this tension always in the way she presents herself between a kind of um, undercutting herself in this really interesting way, right? She's always saying like, I can't do the project. I don't really know. I'm going to screw it up. I, <laughs> I haven't typed it enough. I've wasted all these pages. But then it kind of like, it plays off against this feeling of her as just a really kind of solid presence, right? That the things she's saying about what she can and can't do are often not and frequently the worst indication of what her actual kind of abilities are to produce work, right? I mean, there's these very two different things, yeah. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Uh, it was so great to have you on, Patty. I'm so glad we, we finally got you on. It was lovely. I'm glad I was able to have to to kind of, you know, speak about these meta films. Like, I feel like, you know, like, wait, I didn't get to do what or ever what you portrait of a of a <laughs> young girl at the end of the 60s. But it's right there in the middle of this one. So there was a really nice way of of thinking about, you know, the whole career and 
about just the that you know um funny and um enigmatic and and as you said a beautiful writer like the, all those elements um are so on display in these um in this curated package so thank you both <laughs> yeah for sure um I don't know. Simon, do we have any housekeeping stuff we got to do or we can just say goodbye? Uh, no, I think we can say goodbye for now. There is uh, more Ackerman year yet to come, believe it or not, at some point. And uh, I want to thank you, Patty. We're so going to make much. it happen, people. Even if it takes time, we're going to make these last episodes happen. Oh, 100%. It's going to be great. Last, we yes. need them. We're going to make yeah, these great. last 12 episodes count. <laughs> 12 I'm episodes. <clears throat> No, there's uh, there's not that there's not that much left. All right. Uh, what Kate gave me? You gave me three choices yeah. of things that hadn't been covered, and then like, but then you said like, and there may be some other things I could dig up. So uh. yeah, I think we we have we're past the halfway point in the year. That's what matters. We're past the halfway point in the year Absolutely. by at least a few episodes. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, dear, dear dear listeners, thank you so much, and Patty, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back uh, sometime in the next quarter, probably. <laughs> <laughs> thanks everyone bye good luck Kate give us your news bye I'd work for you I'd even slave for you I'd be a beggar or a knave for you and if that isn't love it'll have to do until the real thing comes along I'd gladly move the earth for you To prove my love dear and it's worth for you And if that isn't love it'll have to do Until the real thing comes along What more can I say? I'd cry for you, I'd sigh for you, I'd tear the stars.